0: So, I've never done this before, but I've seen other podcasts post bonus episodes, and I kind of thought, all right, why not a little bonus episode of Two Riders Slingin' and Yang? And here's the quick background. Last night, Wednesday, January 15th, I was the guest speaker at the Covington, a senior living center out here in Southern California. And... I actually didn't really know what I was going to talk about. I didn't have any notes. Uh, I didn't have any of my books with me. I just figured it would deal with sports and journalism in my career. And uh, I wound up really enjoying the experience and touching on a ton of topics that relate directly to the spirit of this podcast. So with Kiss Alive and Kiss Alive 2, and of course Vanilla Ice Extremely live, guiding my way. Here I am, Jeff Perlman, live from the Covington. Feel free to listen, or not to. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Hello, everybody. Hi, how's everybody doing? Good. I snaking was, was not my thing, so please bear with me. <laughs> okay, so our um, presenter today, tonight, was... Well, is a New York Times bestselling author of 10 books. <laughs> and last October, he had The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. He also has the HBO series Winning Time based on his 2014 book, Showtime. And he's a former sports illustrated baseball writer and ESPN columnist. Please give a warm welcome to Jeff Pearlman. Hello. I'll just stand. Is that- <laughs> you guys, do I need the mic? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. How's that? Yeah, that's good. that's good. Okay. It's so funny. My wife said to me, "What are you going to talk about?" And I said, ah, "I'll just figure it out." Is, he, uh, is that bad? I don't know. Um, let me ask out of curiosity. For, you can hear me, right? Oh, I'm not. It's so funny because I'm very loud. So I'm is that good like that? Yeah, Okay. Um, by a show of hands, how many of you care about sports? It depends no. on what sport you're talking about. Nothing? Oh, okay. A little bit. Baseball. Let's, get, let's actually do this real quick. If you care about baseball, raise your hand. doesn't matter. There's no wrong answer here. Football? All of them. Basketball? Anyone in the NBA? Who here right now is watching the NBA Finals? Yeah, it's really good. Right, Steph Curry, amazing. Right. All, right. Um, all right, so my name is Jeff Perlman. <laughs> if the mic is no good, just tell me, okay? Um, my name is Jeff Perlman, and I uh, I live in Laguna Niguel. I am, wow, light. I am uh, I'm from New York. Anyone, any New Yorkers? I think it's better with the I can see space. I've lived in New York. That counts. <laughs> oh, yeah, that counts. All right, there you go. We got one New Yorker. Where are you from? New York. City? Okay. and here. yeah so i um i was born I, i'm a sports writer i was born and raised in new york we've lived here for eight years in laguna negal um i I was that? i um when i started my career a colleague of mine at sports illustrated used to say he'd say uh you're not going to be the richest you're not going to be like you're not going to live in the biggest house But you'll always have the best stories. Every high school reunion, you're gonna have the best stories. And that's currency. And I actually think I feel like a lot of people here can probably relate with that. Like you go through life and the one thing like you build up are like really good stories. And there's something about the beauty of being a journalist, what I love, (coughs) is hearing people's stories. Like I love listening to people. I love like talking to people. I love hearing stories. I could sit here and talk to you guys for hours and love every minute of it, you know? And the thing about being a journalist is, you're always better off, um, you're always better off listening than talking. Right? So even standing here talking is not my strength because I really like listening to people. I'm much more comfortable listening to people. Um, I'll give a little background and I'll, I'll just tell you some stories from my career. I, uh, I was born and raised in New York. My, I'm from a family that doesn't give one crap about sports. Nobody cares about sports. My mom knows nothing about it. I said to my mom the other day, I said, who is Steph Curry? She said, I don't know. I wrote a book about uh, Walter Payton. Who here knows who Walter Payton is? Oh, yeah. Walter Payton is one of the most famous football players of all time. I said to my mom, is Walter Payton white or black? She did not know. I was doing, I covered the Barry Bonds. When Barry Bonds played for the San Francisco Giants, the all-time home run leader, I was covering his chase while it was going on. Mom, who is Barry Bonds? Tennis? No, baseball. You know, like It's just like I don't know, it So I was raised with parents who know nothing about sports. And I was raised with a brother, an older brother, who knows nothing about sports. Nobody knows a thing about sports. But when I was a kid, I grew up in a tiny town called Mayo Pack, New York. It's about an hour north of New York City. And when I was a kid, and this is gonna sound kind of weird maybe, but I grew up in this town, and it was very sheltered. It was very white. We were one of maybe 20 Jewish families in the town. My best friend was an African-American kid. He was one of two in my grade. But I would go to the library. My parents were too cheap to subscribe to Sports Illustrated. But I would go to the library every week, and I would read Sports Illustrated page by page by page. I said this to someone the other day. The things that did it for me, the two things that did it for me this is the 1980s. Black baseball players with really cool haircuts and names like Malik and names like, you know, just like, Cool names and quote, cool, like there was a baseball player for the Kansas City Royals named UL Washington, and he used to play with a toothpick sticking out of his mouth whenever he played. I love that. I love like Latin American players named like Jose Batista or Joaquin Andujar. I love reading about these people who I didn't see in my town. You know, I loved everything about it. I love the colors of the uniforms, and I would sit in front of my TV. I was a big Mets fan as a kid. In 1986, the Mets won the World Series and I would sit in front of my TV with, and my parents had just very confused by this. I would sit there with a baseball glove and a ball, and I'd throw the ball to myself, and I'd pretend to be Rafael Santana, the Mets shortstop. And you know, I'd do these looping throws, and football, I'd pretend to be Walter Payton, and I'd have the ball under my arm. And my dad, the only person in my house who would watch a game with me is my dad, because I would scratch his back, that was the deal. I would scratch (laughs) his back, he would sit. For the games, and that was it. And the Super Bowls, he, he loved the Super Bowls because they were long, and he'd get a back scratch for like three and a half hours. And that was it. Nobody else gave a crap about sports at all, ever in my house. It was ridiculous. And um, but I loved it, like loved it. I loved everything about it. And I wasn't—I was an okay athlete. I ran cross country in college. I went to the University of Delaware, but I wasn't—I wasn't great. But I loved writing, and I became. Um, I ended up in college becoming editor of the student newspaper. And when I was, when I was in like, uh, I think it was 10th grade, I said to my mom, I said, uh, I'm gonna write for Sports Illustrated. I said, I, I guarantee you, I'm gonna write for Sports Illustrated. And my mom, Jewish New Yorker, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer. You know, like, very, I can be stereotypical because I am Jewish. So I can say, you know, you're a lawyer, doctor. No, you don't understand. I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. I'm telling you, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And, um, okay, to her, the whole idea was preposterous. It was like saying, I'm going to be a Broadway star. Or I'm going to be Michael Jackson. Like, it didn't make any sense to her. But I went to college, and I, I dreamed of this. And um, I graduated from the University of Delaware, and I got one job. Off. I applied to 250 places, and I got one offer. And it was from the Nashville, Tennessean, to be their food and fashion writer. And which is so preposterously ridiculous. Like I'm not just saying this. I dressed up for you today. Like this is me dressed up today. And the fact that I wore shoes is a big. It's big. You know. Usually I don't. Not joking. Before I came here, I was saying to my kids, should I wear flip flops or sneakers? And I was sneakers. So I show up in Nashville, and I'm the food and fashion writer. I know it's so ridiculous. Like I can't cook. You know. Like I can't cook. And I, I'm a hardware dresser. And I'm, I'm the food and fast writer. And um, I, I, was, I just want to say, I was the worst journalist in America. And the stories are like the worst. So one of the early stories I was assigned by my editor, that her name was Catherine May, she was the editor of the feature section. So you write like entertainment stories. There's a local chef, and he cooks really interesting meat. It's a place, the corner market. And they do like different meat, like ferret and possum. And okay. Do a profile on this guy. OK. I go. And I'm sitting with him. I was 22 years old. I don't know what I was thinking. But we're driving around, and he's telling me all the things he cooks. I, I just want to say, I don't know what I was thinking. We're driving, and he's telling me, yeah, I make this, and I make this. And I go, uh, would you ever cook human flesh? So I get back to the office. And my editor calls me in, and she goes, did you ask the head chef at the corner market if you would ever cook human flesh? And I'm like, no, I might have, I might have, I don't know. And so I made all these, I made so many mistakes. And this, the, the, I have so many worst moments in my career early on. I got demoted to the police beat, okay? And you know how like when you're, you're young and you're cocky and you just think you're great and you think you know everything, you see it all the time. I'm 22 years old. I've been demoted to the police beat. I'm on the police beat at the Nashville, Tennessee. And my job as a police reporter was, you sit in the office, you sit with a police scanner, right? This is back in 94, 95. You get a police scanner and you listen. And if anything important, if there's a fire or a chase, you go out to the scene. But we get a report that there's, a, uh, there's been a shooting in Nashville. And this is, I think, maybe six hours after it happened. And I decide to go out to the scene. I can picture this in my head perfectly. The name was, was, they were the Bottoms. His last name was Bottoms. And I drive out to the scene. This is, I swear to God, a true story. I drive out to the scene, 22 years old. I know I'm the best. And I I get to the scene, and no cops are around. And there's tape in front of the door. And it's yellow tape, so it's like police tape, but it doesn't say police. So in my head, maybe it's not police tape, but it's clearly police tape. And I had an editor named Dwight Lewis, and I I had like my big cell phone, 1994 cell phone, so it's like this big, and I call the office, and I say, is Dwight there? And the receptionist says, no, Dwight stepped away from his desk. And I'm like, well, can you call him? Can you have him call me? I'm debating whether I should go in the, can I go in the apartment? Can I look in the apartment? Because nobody's there at this murder scene apartment, right? (laughs) Now, obviously, you shouldn't go in the apartment. Like It doesn't take a rocket scientist here. So i hang up the phone and uh i'm waiting i'm just waiting for dwight to call me back i'm waiting and i'm looking at the door oh and the door handle is open like the door handle i do the door handle door handle is open so i'm uh, i'm waiting and you, you know how like you have the angel and the devil on your shoulder like the angel's like you don't want to go in the apartment because that's bad but the devil's like you should totally go in the apartment because you should and <laughs> i'm like all right devil so I open the door, and I go like this, and there's bullet holes in the walls. There's blood all over. I'm taking notes furiously in my notepad. This is great. This is amazing color. Like, bullet holes there, notepad. And I write this all down. I make sure not to like, not like touching anything, just spe- really not too much. And uh, <laughs> only a few fingerprints, not many. And uh, I come out, and the phone rings. Jeff, it's Dwight. Whatever you do, don't go in the apartment. You cannot go in the apartment. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I might have gone in the apartment. And he's like, Jeff, I got demoted so many times during my job at the Tennessean, like ridiculous amounts of times. And I finally made it to the big beat at the Tennessean, which was high school wrestling. I became the high school wrestling writer at the National Tennessean. And I, I loved it. Like, I took it so seriously, and I put so much into covering wrestling. And my dream was always to write for Sports Illustrated. That was my dream, Sports Illustrated. Because you guys, I mean, remember, like back in the day, that was it. Like, if you were a sports fan, SI was the Bible of sports. And I grew up, my neighbor, when I was growing up, because my parents were too cheap, I had a neighbor named John Daly, and he lived one house down. I barely knew him, but he used to bundle his Sports Illustrateds and put them out for the garbage man. And I would, like, little eight year old me. I feel like sneak over, nobody's looking, steal John Daly's Sports Illustrated, take them on. I still have them under my bed at home in California. I swear. And I read those things because they're the Bible to me. So my dream is to write for Sports Illustrated. And I start applying. I start writing to the magazine. And I'm like, you know, dear Sports Illustrated, I'm this writer, the Tennessean. And I kept bothering them. And eventually they said, Well, why don't you pitch, give us some ideas for a story? Maybe we'll let you write one story. So I pitched some boring story about a swimmer who's very good, no. I pitched a story about a basketball coach, local basketball coach, no. And then I was thinking about something like, um, when I was in college, I did this thing that it's the weirdest thing I've ever done, one of them. I was at the University of Delaware, I was a junior at Delaware, and I applied early for the NBA draft just to see what would happen, right? I didn't play basketball. I played basketball on an intramural team called Edna Zedibos. I did not play for the University of Delaware. Does anyone know what Edna Zedables is. Was, ever, do you remember the show, The Facts of Life? I don't remember the Facts of Life. Anyway, there was a restaurant, Edna Zedables. That was my team. So I applied for the NBA draft. I wrote a letter, and I sent it to the NBA. And I said, dear commissioner, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a junior forward at the University of Delaware. And technically, I was, because I was at the University of Delaware, and I did play intramural basketball. And, uh, I would love. I am declaring myself eligible for the NBA, the 1993 NBA draft, and I send the letter. And a few weeks later, I'm in my dorm room at Delaware, and uh, my roommate's like, "Pearl, there's a there's a there's a letter from the NBA for you." I'm like, wow. And I open it, and it says, "Dear Mr. Perlman, as of this date, you are eligible for the NBA draft." Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, wow. Then I go home for winter break. I'm in my hometown, and. Uh, the phone rings and it's—I uh, forgot it was the head of security from the NBA, Rod Thorne. And he's like, uh, is this Jeff Perlman? And I'm like, yes. He goes, You're, you applied early for the NBA draft, right? I go, yeah. He goes, we have a question. I said, okay. He goes, who the hell are you? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm a junior forward at Delaware and I just think my talents are ready for the next level and blah, blah, blah. So I did that at Delaware and I pitched it. So years later, I want to work for Sports Illustrated. And I told them, well, I applied early for the NBA draft. And they said, write that. And I wrote that story and I got hired by SI three months later. And when I got hired, I haven't told this story in a while, and it gets, like when I got hired at SI, when they called me and offered me the job, I was sitting in my apartment in Nashville, and Nashville was very lonely two years for me. And they called and I told my mom a decade earlier that I was gonna work for SI. And as soon as they offered me the job, I called my mom. And I wasn't, my mom is a great mother, but I was like, I told you, I told you. And it was one of the great, just great moments in my life, like truly great moments in my life. And I'm sure a lot of you like, I just, I always get mad when people tell, like try to convince younger people not to chase their dreams and not to go for it. Like you might as well, you should go for it. I just I've always thought you should. So I get hired at Sports Illustrated, 1996. And um, I was kind of a nobody and I started covering baseball. And then I had sort of the biggest story of my life happen. And uh, very few people remember this. There was a baseball player named John Rocker. So Does anyone remember John Rocker? That's OK. You're better. History is better that he has forgotten. So um, I was a baseball writer. And the Atlanta Braves had a pitcher named John Rocker. This is 1999. And the Braves were really good. Do you remember John Rocker? Yes. He was not the best guy. And, um, <laughs> but it's the best story of my life, probably. So John Rocker is a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves and Sports Illustrated wants me to profile him. And what that means is, so the Braves were playing the Mets in the playoffs that year. So that means you're me, you go to the playoffs, and you, during, and you try to talk to John Rocker in the Braves clubhouse when you have a chance. And it's not that easy because there's a lot of media around. So you're, you're elbowing out other reporters. So basically, I would get 10 minutes with him here, 10 minutes with him there, and he was kind of known as a jerk. And in my head, I was gonna write this story John Rocker, the misunderstood guy. He's not really a jerk. And I interviewed his parents, and his mom told me this beautiful story about John Rocker at the end. She's like, he was a kid, and he had a dog, and his dog died, and he picked up the dog, and tears are streaming down his face and cradling the dog. And I ended up writing this story with limited information. John Rocker, the misunderstood guy, and here he is crying over his dead dog. It's beautiful, right? Beautiful. You'll love this. Act. I write that story, and um, one of the lessons I learned, I actually really learned, is you should never go into a story um, with a plan of what you're going to write. Like you should be a blank slate. Every person should be a blank slate because you don't know. So I write this story, but the Braves, they go on to the World Series. They get swept by the Yankees in four games, and um, the story never runs. This is where. This is the best. I swear, this is my favorite story of all time. You may hate it, but I love it. um, My editor says, why don't you go down to Georgia, because he's from Macon, Georgia. Why don't you go down to Georgia and freshen up the John Rocker story, okay? So I called John Rocker's agent. His name was Joe Sambito. He actually pitched in the major leagues. And I said, um, I said, hey, Joe, this is Jeff Perlman. I would love to talk to you about, I would love to talk to John Rocker. And, um, Joe Sambito, I remember this, imprinted in my head. That's awesome. You're gonna love him. He's the best. You should come down and spend the day with him, right? Great, this is gonna be amazing. I fly down to Macon, Georgia, okay? I just wanna say, I have to preface this by saying, nothing John Rocker said, there are no beliefs that John Rocker expressed that I share. So I just wanna say, I will quote him, but do not take these as my views, they are not at all. John Rocker picks me up on the side of the road in this, I always say I was kind of like a hooker on the side door. Like he drives along in like his Porsche. And he's like, "Are you Jeff?" And I'm like, "I am." He's like, "Come on in," and I'm in his car. And it's John Rocker, and we're driving on the highway in Georgia. And he's behind a car, and the car is driving slow. And John Rocker says to me, "Effing Asian drive. Effing Asian women, they don't know how to drive. These women, they don't know how to drive." And of course, we drive past the car, and it's a white guy driving the car, right? But, you know, Asian women, they can't drive. We get to a toll booth, okay, we're driving. We get to a toll booth, and um, John Rocker pulls out, and he throw, it's one of those like where you throw in your change into the toll booth, and he throws in a quarter, and it doesn't open. He throws in another quarter, and it doesn't open. He spits on the toll booth. He literally rolls down the window, spits on the toll booth. Someone honks. He, he, he turns and gives him the middle finger, okay? This is me. Now, I have a notepad and a tape recorder, and he knows I'm a writer from Sports Illustrated. The very important details here. We're, we're going to, we're going to, he's going to speak to a school of disadvantaged kids. That's our day together. John Rocker and me, it's like set up by the agent, right? I'm gonna go speak. We're driving to the school for disadvantaged kids. And um, I'm like, I said to him, do you enjoy doing this? And it's like the biggest softball question of all time. Like he's supposed to say, oh, I love doing this. He goes, nah, man, I have to hate this stuff. But you know, my agent says I need to do it. I'm like, OK. We get to this school for disadvantaged children, right? There used to be a song that John Rocker would come out of the bullpen to when he was a pitcher called I Want to Rock by Twisted Sister. And it was a big hit back in the 80s. John Rocker, um, oh, he's coming to speak to these kids. They play the song. The kids go crazy. Yeah, John Rocker. John Rocker is great. And as we're leaving, he steals the CD from the school. He literally takes the CD where no one's looking and puts it in his back pocket, and we walk out with a reporter, with a notepad, and a tape recorder. <laughs> we, um, he tells me in the course of a day that he hates New York City, which is <laughs> where I'm from. He, he hates foreigners. He hates Asians. He calls an African American teammate a a fat monkey. Like he is a horrible, 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 detestable human being. And one of the and I'm like a Jewish New Yorker. You know, like you got to know your audience a little bit. And I'm not. You know, it's just weird, right? So um, and I always say like one of the important lessons that I always tell younger journalists is, um, it's not your job to debate your subject or to argue your subject. Like your job. Is for him to open up to you, and that doesn't mean you lie to him. Like if he says, "I hate foreigners," like I'm not supposed to say, "Oh yeah, me too." I'm just you just listen. Like your job is to listen and to hear and to get him to open up. So he drops me off at the end of the day, and oh, one more thing, I totally forgot. We uh, we go for lunch, right? This was the one that really did it for me in a weird way. We go for lunch, and we go to like a strip mall, and we go to a sandwich shop in a strip mall, and as we're walking to the sandwich shop. We're walking side by side and he had a pen in his hand and he dropped the pen. And I picked up the pen and I said, you dropped your pen. And he said, nah man, he's a, I meant to do that. And I was thinking, what kind of person just decides to drop his pen on the sidewalk? You know, like you're going through life and you have a pen and you're done with your pen. Like who just drops a pen on the sidewalk? You know, like you, like don't you put it in your pocket and throw it out? And I just thought it was so bizarre. And this was John Rocker, so I, um. I write, we end the day, he drops me off with of the car and he says, uh, that was great man, it was great hanging with you, I can't wait for the story. And I'm like, oh boy. And uh, I'm like, I, I don't know. And I, I literally called my mom afterwards, I'm very close to my mom and I was like, uh, I don't know what just happened. Like this is the craziest thing ever, I don't know what just happened. So I go back and I write the story. And I lead the story, At the beginning of the story is me and John Rocker driving down the highway John Rocker, spitting on the toll booth, giving the middle finger, complaining about Asian women when it's a white guy driving by, you know, like the whole thing. And I write this story. And the story blows up. This is, it was the last issue of 1999. It blows up. It explodes. It's everywhere. Okay. So, I'm a baseball writer. Like, my job is to cover baseball. Oh, and John Rocker gets suspended. (laughs) He gets fined. He gets demoted. He's a pariah. Saturday Night Live. Will Ferrell did a, sp- a spoof of John Rocker on Saturday Night Live. I mean, it was a horrible embarrassment, like horrible embarrassment. So, 2000 comes. The 2000 season comes, and um, we're in a meeting at Sports Illustrated, and my editor says, "Well, someone, we need to go cover the Braves-Yankees this weekend. Braves and Yankees were playing in Atlanta," and I said, uh, I'll, "I'll go." I guess i'll go i'll go and uh john rocker by the way is enormous right like he's enormous he's about six four probably about 240 steroids all over the place you know like he's he's a he's not a nice guy he's a big guy and i'm you know just a sports writer um but i was always taught early in my career about accountability and as a journalist you have to show your face if you write something that's controversial if you write something that's critical of someone you, you have to show your face when you can. You absolutely have to. And um, there's a little bit of a tangent, but when I was a writer at the Tennessean, I wrote a story. I wrote a high school football story. It was one of my last stories in Nashville before I left. Um, and I wrote about a, uh, a quarterback for a high school team, uh, David Lipscomb High School. And in the article I wrote, this guy, his passes were either way too high or way too low. I said he had an up and down game. His passes were way too up or way too down. And That week, we got tons of calls into the newspaper. How could you write this about a high school kid? Who do you think you are, et cetera, et cetera. My editor the next week says, you have to go out to that high school. You have to cover their next game. You're covering the next game. And I went out there and at the end of the game, I was surrounded, because as a high school sports writer, you, you go to the sidelines of the game. I was surrounded by the team and the quarterback came up to me and he said, don't you ever come around here again.
1: And the funny thing is that was my last ever assignment in Nashville.
0: So there's some high school quarterback who thinks he ran me out of town when it was just like the end of my career there. But I always thought about that. So I decide I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm going to see John Rocker, right? I don't want to. I have no desire to have this happen. I'm terrified. But you need to walk through your fears sometimes. So I go to Atlanta. I spend a lot of time in the Yankee clubhouse. So underneath a baseball stadium, you basically have like the bowels of the stadium. And on one end, you have the home clubhouse, and then you walk along a big corridor, and the other end, you have the visiting. I spent all this time in the Yankee clubhouse, right? But I know I at least have to say I tried to see John Rocker. In the back of my head, I'm, it's like when you ask someone out and you're really nervous, but you know you have to do it, but you're really nervous. and like I, I remember my, when I asked out Jody Cohen to the prom, I hung up like five times, know, I was like, you hear, hello? You know, but you know you have to do it at some point. So I decided I'm gonna walk down to John Rocker. I walk down to the Braves and I'm walking down and I got my notepad in my hand and a pen. My head is down and I'm walking and I hear this. I swear to God this right here. You don't know how long I've been waiting for this. And I look up and John Rocker's there and he's waiting for me. And he gets in my face like this far away do you have any idea what you did to me? Do you have any idea what that story did for me? Do you have any blah, blah, blah? And he's screaming at me, poking me like this in the chest. And my only good moment of that moment of terror was, um, he goes, I drove you around Georgia, I introduced you to my family, I bought you lunch, and I said, well actually I paid for lunch. Well I don't care about that, blah, 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 blah. blah. I would say as a journalist you always have to pay for lunch because you don't want them to feel like you, you are indebted to them in any way. So it was horrifying and terrifying. And I remember um, after the game, I went up to the press box and I was sitting down writing and I turn around and all these cameras are pointed at me, TV cameras, because people had witnessed it. And it was just a story that I carried with me for multiple reasons. But that story really, it became a huge, enormous American sports story and kind of set me on my way. And um, for the past, 18 years, Uh, I've written books. Um, I have, my first book is about the 86 Mets. I wrote a book about Barry Bonds. My the book that means the most to me is Walter Payton. It was called Sweetness. And, um, quick story, I mean, uh, when I was at Sports Illustrated, so you guys know Walter Payton no longer alive. Is that generally? Walter Payton, deceased. He's, I think, either him, Jim Brown, or maybe Barry Sanders is best running back in NFL history. And he played for the Chicago Bears. And when I was at Sports Illustrated, Walter Payton was dying of a liver disease. And I was a young writer, I, was, I think I was 27. And my editor said, does anyone want to go to Chicago? But well, he said to me, would you want to go to Chicago and interview Walter Payton? Uh, he's trying to draw attention to a charity. Do you want to go talk to him? And I said, yeah, I'll do that, of course. And I flew out to Illinois, am I too loud or is the volume okay? Okay, um, I flew out to Illinois and um, I get to this office in the suburbs of Illinois. Uh, and this old man answers the door. And he's wearing like a taxi driver's cap and a members only windbreaker. And his pants are baggy. And I was like, uh, I'm here to see Walter Payton. And he said that to me. And he'd shrunken so much. His eyes were yellow, they were jaundiced. And I sat across from him, and it was. One of the most heartbreaking experiences of my life. He was dying. He knew he was dying. I think he was 47. It's so funny. You know how this works. Like when you're 27, so I'm 50 now. When you're 27, 47, he was 47, it sounds kind of old, which is weird, right? Because then you're like, no, it isn't. That's not even close to it. He was 47 years old, and uh, maybe 46 actually, and he he was dying. And that stuck with me and stuck with me and stuck with me. And I really wanted to write a biography about Walter Payton. And I got this book deal, and um, I don't know how many of you are you fairly is anyone into biographies? Any of you guys read biographies a decent amount? Yeah, some. The thing about biographies—it's really complicated and interesting—is you kind of have two choices when you enter this profession. You can you can be a myth maker, which is to say, you can just write the glorious story of Frank Sinatra, right? we are you Sinatra's name? The glorious story of Frank Sinatra and never mention anything about gambling, womanizing, anything at all, right? Mm. And you can do that, you can do that, and that's a legit option. But it's not a real biography. Like, it's not, it's just not a real biography. A real biography tells the true story of someone. And it's painful, and it kinda sucks sometimes. But I just think, I, I view these books as books you're writing for history. Like, if you can't write a JFK biography and not include Marilyn Monroe. You know, you just, you can, you, you just can't. Um, So I'm working on this Walter Payton biography and Walter Payton is my hero, one of my heroes. And um, early on, I went to see his brother. His brother, Eddie, was the golf coach at Jackson State, Mississippi, and I went to see him. And he said, um, just so you know, Walter wasn't perfect. That's what he said. Just so you know, Walter wasn't perfect. And I feel like he was preparing me in a way. Like I actually feel like he was saying, look, you're gonna, just so you know. And the weirdest thing, I mean, there are a lot of things. Walter Payne, the last few years of his life, were really rough, like really rough. First of all, he took a beating playing football. He used painkillers, as everyone did in the NFL then, just nonstop. He was suicidal at the end of his life. He would call his assistant in the middle of the night and say, you're not gonna see me tomorrow morning. I'm ending my life tonight. I had no idea about any of this. He he didn't live with his wife for the last 10 years of his life. And at his Hall Hall of Fame induction ceremony, His wife was sitting in row one, and his mistress was sitting in row three. And the wife didn't know. Walter, oh, and the whole week Walter made sure his wife was at this end of the hotel, and the mistress was at this end of the hotel. And here's the crazy thing. The mistress says to Walter Payton's assistant right before the Hall of Fame induction, I want to meet her. This is what Walter Payton's wife said. I want to meet her. And the assistant's like, really? And she's like, yes, I want to meet her. So Walter Payne's wife and Walter Payne's mistress sit down at the hotel, and Walter Payne's wife says to her, you can have him, which is just crazy, you know? And like, these are the things, when you write a biography, it's almost weird. You want to know, but you don't want to know. You know, like you kind of want to know, but you don't want to know. He had a child he didn't take care of, but he also was an amazing guy who like really looked out for people, and like, at the end of his life, was very heroic. <laughs> And I don't know. These are the, so, these are the complications of biography and sports writing in general. Like, I feel like you have a choice in life. You can write truthfully about people, or you can write mythology. I don't know. Does so anybody any questions? I feel like I'm rambling here. and right no, That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> How long have I gone for? Not long enough. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, like yeah, please, go ahead. Uh, I didn't read, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I didn't read your book about the 86 men I'm offended. It would have been a real challenge that book. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll repeat that question to so someone everyone heard. Yeah. yeah, so my first book was about the 86 Mets, the 1986 New York Mets. They won the World Series and um, it was funny. I uh, It was my first book. I didn't know anything about writing a book. I knew nothing about writing a book. But that was like, that team was my wheelhouse because so I was 1986, I was 13, 14 years old um, and basically what I did, like the only way I knew to report is you find everybody? Like that's basically my whole approach. Find everybody. Find everybody. So the first thing I did is I got, the New York Mets actually gave me binders and binders of articles from 1986. They have a PR guy named Jay Horowitz, he's the best, They sent me home with all these binders. And I went through those binders and I would circle any name and every name. So I called every clubhouse attendant, every player. The two guys, the two stars, two of the stars were Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry. Dwight Gooden was in jail at the time. And strawberry wouldn't talk to me, right? But the thing is, my my basic philosophy for biographies is this: like, if you're not like, I have a book coming out about Bo Jackson. Who knows? You don't know who Bo Jackson is. Two sport. Bo Jackson was a two sports star. He played football. He played uh, baseball. Super duper star. And um, he called me early on and said, uh, "I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not talking to you. I'm not mad at you for doing the book, but I'm not going to help you." And that just gets me. Okay. Well, I'm going to call everybody. So I buy, the first thing I do is buy every, I bought every, he played football at Auburn University. I bought all four Auburn University media guides from when he was there. I made a file for every single name in the books. I bought the media guides when he played for the Kansas City Royals and the Raiders and the Angels and the White Sox. And I made a file for every guy. And you make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I end up interviewing 730 people about Bo Jackson. I'm like, you just want to be thorough. So for the Mets, there's just thorough, thorough, thorough. And the thing I really, I mean, the 86 Mets are famous for the ball going between Bill Buckner's legs in the World Series, Mookie Wilson. And the thing you wanna do when something is really famous is you wanna capture the minutia that people may not know, right? So like, one thing I learned that I thought was really cool, it's game six of the World Series, for those of you who don't know, Bill Buckner's playing first base for the Red Sox. It's a tie game, the ball goes between his legs, the winning run scores, and for most people, that's it, that's the story. But I found the guy who got the ball. Because it was a guy, the traveling secretary for the Mets, wound up picking up the, the, the umpire gave him the baseball. And he brought the baseball to Mookie Wilson, who was the guy who hit the ball. And Mookie Wilson signed the ball to Art, this is the ball that won it. And he gave it back to Art Richmond, this guy. And years later, Art Richmond sold the ball, the ball to Charlie Sheen for like $100,000. <laughs> so right now, Charlie Sheen owns this otherwise useless baseball for $100,000. So. Uh, But it was fun. I mean, the thing is, like, you get to, it's the best job. I love my job. I love it so much. I love it. I never wear shoes. You know, like, I, like, I've been able, one of the things I never thought about when I was younger, I have two kids. Like, I've been there for everything. You know, like, you make your own schedule. I haven't had a meeting in years. It's just, it's just a joy. Writing, I love writing. I mean, I hate writing and I love writing. There's an old Dorothy Parker line. I, I, I hate writing. I love having written. And that's sort of, that's how it is. Because writing is torturous. But when you're done, you feel really good about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Any other questions? Yeah? How did you get to California? Oh, how did I get? To, I drove. <laughs> ah, good on you. OK, true story. I, um, the question was, how did I get to California? I was living in New York my whole life. And I used to come out here. Well, I, was, I did a book. There's a TV show now called Winning Time on HBO. And that's based on a book I wrote called Showtime. It was about the 1980s Lakers. By the way, if you can ever get a TV show based on a book, it's like the best thing. I mean, it's like ridiculous. So uh, it's like money for nothing, money other things. You know, it's just like it's great. So I wrote this book on the Lakers. And I was coming out to L.A. and to Southern California. And I was also uh, appearing on a, there's a guy named Jim Rove, who's a sports personality. And he, had, he used to have a TV show. And he, he would fly me out here. And I would come out, and I'd say to my wife, she's a native New Yorker, I'm a native New Yorker, all our family's in New York. but I would say to my wife, we would never have to shovel a driveway again. Like, this is the best thing ever. There's, it's never cold here. Like, there are palm trees. And she was like, no, no, I'm not coming. No, I'm not leaving my family, no. And I was like, just come out with me on one trip, All right?" Fine. She comes out, and I spent the day working, and she spent the day on Balboa Island, walking around Balboa Island, which is basically like giving her chocolate. You know, it's like utterly ridiculous. And she's like, it's really nice here. And I'm like, I know she was still always known I know it was our anniversary 8 years ago, 9 years ago now and um, she had to be away for her anniversary this is a true story and she left me a gift, and I didn't know what it was and I opened it and it was a California angels hat with a note and it said, I'm nauseous I'm terrified, I'm scared but let's do it oh. and uh, here we are, California And I got, she, now she loves it, she's like there's no way I'll going back to New York no way. yeah it's pretty good Right, don't you like it here? I mean, it's pretty good overall. Yes. No? Yeah, I mean, they're no place. I always say they're worse place is to live in Southern California. Yeah, any other, anyone? Yes, sir. I think it you're watching the Angels and Dodgers pretty closely now. I am. Why are they suddenly plummeted? Any ideas? I mean, the Angels are a... <clears throat> I've never seen anything like the Angels. I don't even understand the Angels. The Angels, they have, they have the best player in baseball. Two of the best. I was gonna say, you could argue two of the five best players in baseball, right? And they just stink every year. And the thing is, I always take my son to Angels games because the tickets are always like three bucks. Like they're super cheap. The stadium is terrible. Their uniforms are boring. The food at the stadium's horrible. Like, there are no redeeming qualities to the Angels. And except that they have Mike Trout and Otani. And I don't understand why they can't get decent pitching. Every year, they're terrible. So I mean, the Dodgers will come around. The Dodgers, you know, obviously some guys are hurt. But the Angels are the greatest. Mem- I've lived here eight years. The Angels have never been interesting, and it's like okay to be terrible. It's awful to be <laughs> boring. You know, You just don't want to be boring. If I were their manager, that didn't help. If I were their manager, well, make it. Of course, it's crazy. It's crazy. Are you an Angels fan? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I'm a Dodgers fan for heaven's sake. Are you? I so should. I'm an Angel fan. Are you really? And let me tell you what I think is wrong with the Angels. Tell me. I think the person that owns the Angel team yes. isn't properly in, involved with the team. All he's interested in is buying good members for his team. He really isn't interested in baseball. How are you so an Angels fan? Aren't you kind of bored of the Angels? Are you just like, wow, so I, I just have to be an Angel fan. My son was given a brick in the, in the infield um. when he had retired from L.A. Orange County, from Orange County Fire Authority. I see. He has his own brick in the stadium. I see. He takes the train in there. It's so easy to park if you take the train. Yeah, I know. And there's always tickets available. You can always get Angel's tickets, no matter what. <laughs> Although I love going to Dodgers. I love Dodger Stadium. I love everything about Dodger Stadium. But it's in Chavez Ravine. I know, but it's so like... And they tore out the Mexicans to make room for Chavez 100% Ravine. true. There's actually a really good book about that, how despicable it was, what they did. I know. But the stadium is beautiful. Not that that justifies. It's in the wrong place. Yeah, you are correct. Yeah. Are you following uh, golf very much? yeah I hate golf. Is <laughs> that bad? I hate it. What do you, you had any comments about the two associations that are forming? Well, so a good friend of mine is this guy Alan Shipnuck, who wrote the Phil Mickelson book that just came out, and Phil. Ah. I just find it really disturbing that all these guys are willing to take Saudi money. Yeah. Uh, it's weird to me. Right. Like it's weird to me. Like I don't. You guys aren't hurting for money. It's I agree. weird. And they turned on like the it. one that made them who they are. Yeah, exactly. I don't terrible. like it. Wait, I'll tell you a funny golf story, though. I don't want to go too long. but um, Okay. <laughs> Years ago, I, I had a brief period working at a newspaper in New York called Newsday. And the U.S. Open was coming. This is a true story. U.S. Open is coming. And I said, I pitched the idea of a story. What if I, I don't play golf at all. What if I take one month and just dive into golf? And I practice every day and I take lessons and I work with a pro and then I go play Beth Page. And Beth Page is one of the best courses in the country. And my editor's like, do it, do it. So for one month, I played golf all the time. I went to the driving range all the time. I worked with a professional uh, on my swing, on my approach. I played part three courses, part four courses. And finally it's my big day. I go to Beth Page. Now this is the worst part. I jump in with three other guys who are playing regularly, right? Which is a horrible thing to do. And I'm like, hey, can I jump in? Yeah, okay. This is not a joke. I shot a 160, which is like... In the <laughs> first holes. Oh. Yeah, exactly. I just feel so bad these poor guys. Imagine you're like these guys, and they're like happy to be out for a day, and they're stuck with this. I shot a 160. It's the last time I played golf. Did you take lessons before you played? Yes. Yeah, yeah it did help. Yeah, so. You didn't take enough lessons. I don't think any, I could agree me infinite lessons. It's not my game. I don't have the patience for it, yeah. Did you ever co- cover tennis? I'm trying to think, not really, not a ton. A good friend of mine is a size is tennis fighter. Are you a big tennis fan? Yeah. Who's your favorite player? Oh, I think a bunch of them. Who are your five, who are your three favorite tennis players of all time? Oh, of all time? They're yeah. Rod Laver. Oh yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, Roy Emerson. Oh, I like it. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're all the old guys. <laughs> Can't remember. Well, I guess no, no, no. I liked.
1: No, no. Uh, no,
0: no. What's her name? Jane Austen. Not Jane, Jane Austen. What's her name? The gal. Austen. John Austen. No, Tracy, Tracy. Austen. Tracy. Yeah, Tracy Austen. John yeah. McEnroe. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love McEnroe. <laughs> because he was such a fighter. Yeah, and I hated Jimmy Connors. <laughs> like, I love McEnroe. I hated Connors, you know? Yeah. My wife is a huge, huge, huge Venus and Serena fan, so we talked to this a lot i yeah. 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 Serena Williams is playing in the Wimbledon starting in a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. You know, that today, we yeah. used to go to the US Open a decent amount because there was an order yeah. Yes, sir. Besides John Rocker, who was your next artist inter- interview? Oh, man. I've had so many. Uh, there was a guy. <laughs> Let me think. Could it be him. Okay. There was a guy who played for the San Francisco Giants. He was a really good hitter. Named Will Clark. Does anyone remember Will Clark? Will the Thrill Clark. Will the Thrill. Okay. I actually did. I, I'll, t- my two, I'll give you my two real quick. So Will Clark was the worst, right? I mean, I couldn't stand Will Clark. And after that John Rocker story came out, I had to go. So it was tough because uh, after the John Rocker story came out, I was kind of known as the guy, as the rocker guy. And that meant I, when I would go to baseball clubhouses, mm-hmm. people would be like, there's the rocker guy, there's the rocker guy, the rocker guy. You'd see people whispering, literally like, shh, 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 rocker guy. <laughs> so um, I went to you. Will Clark was with the Baltimore Orioles at that point. And I uh, I walked up to him in front of the entire clubhouse in spring training. And I, and I said, uh, hey, Will, my name's Jeff Perlman. And Will, Will Clark talks with a cackle. He isn't just a cackle. And he goes, uh, Jeff Perlman? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're the guy who did Rocker? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, he cursed a lot. I won't curse. He's like, why would I ever talk to you? Why would blah, 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 blah? And he's like chewing me out in front of the clubhouse. Right. And it's really, being a, a baseball writer or a sports writer is a very vulnerable position a lot of times. It really is. I'm not looking for sympathy, but it <laughs> is. Like, you're not the cool kid in the class. You're the nerd in the class. And they're the cool kids, you know? like. So I'm getting... Chewed out by Will Clark in front of uh, in front of the entire clubhouse. And it was just mortifying. And every time he would see me, he was just a nightmare. The other guy, so I wrote a biography of Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds is, you know, the all-time home run leader and an uber famous baseball player. He was the worst person I've ever seen. And I always I tell my kids and my dad used to say to me, like, the best way to judge someone is by how they treat people they don't need to be nice to. You know, like, that's a really good way of judging someone. Like, generally, if, you know, if someone's very important to you, you're gonna be nice to them. But how do you treat the guy who holds the door for you? How do you treat the guy who cleans your shoes? How do you treat the barber? And um, he was so bad. He made everyone's life miserable. He uh, also like, he like, true story, Giants Clubhouse, the good players, if you're just an okay player, you get one locker. If you're a great player, you get two lockers. That's like a treat. He took up a whole wall. He took up five lockers along a wall. He had his own leather recliner in front of his locker, his own TV in front of his locker. He had two massage therapists working for him in the clubhouse. He had two media relations people working for him. He had a photographer who followed him everywhere in the clubhouse like this. And if you were a reporter, there was always, this is is what it was to interview Barry Bonds after a game. So basically, after a baseball game, the game's over, and the media is allowed into the clubhouse. And we go and you know you talk to the players and they usually go, oh, so what was that pitch you saw? Oh, it was a fastball, well, okay, blah, blah, blah. You would walk up to Bonds, and it would be like this. We'd all tiptoe up, right? And he would have his back to us in his big leather recliner. And he, he knew you were there, but he wouldn't acknowledge anyone, right? He would he'd clip his toenails or he would pretend he's talking to a teammate and finally, some reporter would work up the nerve and say, uh, hey, Barry, so what was that you hit? What pitch was that you hit? And he'd be like, he'd pretend he didn't hear the question. And then someone else would be like, so Barry, uh, how do you feel about today's game? And he'd be like, yeah, it was all right. And then someone asked, him, and it was like this dance every night. And he knew you were there, and he knew you had a deadline, and he knew you had to get out, but he just was miserable every time. And it was like, it sucked like covering him was a soul-sucking, horrible experience. And I will say, I'll say it's my last thing, I don't want to do Is My greatest moment of my career in many ways was a couple of years ago, I was assigned to write a story about a basketball player named Jimmer Fredette, okay? And he played for the New Orleans Pelicans. And the, the media guy for the Pelicans said, you can talk to Jimmer at the hotel in LA, he'll meet you in the lobby at the hotel. We're going to take the bus in. We'll get to the lobby. You can sit down with Jimmer. I said, great. I drove to the hotel, and um, I called the publicist, and I said, so what's the deal? And he said, okay, Jimmer will be there in 10 minutes. How much time do you need with him? And I said, I don't know, 45 minutes? And he said, "Uh, Jimmer can give you 10 minutes. I was like, I was 45 years old at this point. Jimmer for that was like 22. And I said to the guy, I was like, I'm not going to do this story. I just don't need it. I'm 45 years old. I'm not chasing around. I'm not begging a 22-year-old kid for 10 minutes this time. I'm not going to do it. And the the guy is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? That's not, you know. I was like, I just, I'm not, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I don't want to beg a 22-year-old for 10 minutes. It's ridiculous. And I left. And he did the story. And I turned down the money. And I was the happiest person in the world because I felt like I had a little integrity. And, you know. So, anyway. (laughs) Anyway, That's my not exciting job for this Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Oh yeah. All right. So um, there have been many. There have been many. There are always more. It's funny because the negative stories are more entertaining, but the good guys are always like they're more. I'll tell you interesting. I did a story years ago. I was working on a story. There's a picture for the this is a this is a good story. There's a picture for the Cincinnati Reds at the time named Joe Valentine. He was unknown, and I was just doing a story about him. And I said, "What are your uh, What are your parents' names? Just you know, getting background." And he said, Deb and Doreen, right? And this is 15 years ago, Deb and Doreen. And I said, oh, were you we raised by gay parents? And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's really interesting, blah, blah, blah. We talked about it. And then I started talking to different players about sort of homosexuality. And, and one guy after another was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You don't know, no, I don't get it. I don't want that in my life, blah, blah, blah. And Ken Griffey Jr. because so I remember Ken Griffey? Yeah. His dad played? Ken Griffey Jr. I always loved Ken Griffey Jr. I went up to Ken Griffey Jr. And I said, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, I'm writing about this to your teammate, Joe Valentine, and Griffey got, I didn't expect this talk. He goes, I don't care. He goes, my best friend is gay. I don't, I don't, what do I care? I don't care if a teammate's gay. Like I just, if he's a nice guy, he's a nice guy. And at that time, like 15 years ago, that was really rare. Like baseball is very sheltered and very conservative. And I always was struck by his open-mindedness there. He's like, I don't care. And I'll tell you another thing, this is true. Do you guys remember Lou Piniella? Yeah. All right, true story, swear to God, 100% true. Lou Pinella is the manager of the Seattle Mariners. I was doing a story about Ichiro, you know, Ichiro Suzuki. Okay, I had to interview Lou Piniella. They told me to go into his office. Lou Piniella had a bathroom attached to his office. I interviewed Lou Piniella, I swear to God, and this has to be a world record. While he was urinating, smoking a cigarette, and eating a hoagie. All at the same time. He was eating a hoagie, using the, using the urinal, and smoking a cigarette. And I see the horrified look on your face, but it's true, I swear. And I don't think anyone has ever done that before or since. These are the things you see as a baseball writer. You know? But as my guy said, you, you always have the best stories at the your at reunions. you know. Like, so anyway, he was a great guy. Yeah. Okay, how, how did you end up writing a book about... Barry Bonds, when yeah. you felt despicable, he was yeah, a despicable creature. Right. All right. So I was covering baseball. That's a good question. That's a great, I don't know if I've ever been asked that, actually. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. But she got it first. So yeah, she, she wins the prize. First, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Snooze, you lose, right? Um So Bonds, I was covering baseball. I had written my first book. It did really well the Mets book. It's kind of like this, right? Just because someone is a jerk, it's almost like it's like this. When you see someone who's a jerk, I think a lot of people look at someone who's a jerk and they think, they just think that guy's a jerk. Right? Someone's a jerk, that guy's a jerk. Like my father-in-law is in the hospital, and yesterday he had a nurse who I thought was a jerk. And I said to my wife, God, she was really kind of a jerk. But as a journalist, what you I really start thinking is, why is that person a jerk? Like what happened in that guy's life that made him this way? You know? And that's when you really get going. You know, like, why? like there's a reason Barry Bonds treats people like dirt. So what is it? What is it about Barry Bonds? And I, I was really became fascinated by him. Truly fascinated by him. And the thing is, his godfather is Willie Mays. His dad is Bobby Bonds, who played in the major leagues. And both those guys were kind of jerks too. And then you're like, but why were they jerks? Like that's the thing, how it works. Why were they jerks? Okay, they came up in a sport. That didn't treat African American baseball players very well, you know? And you were judged a certain way. Bobby Bonds, his dad, was a tremendous talent who was always traded. And a lot of these black ball players, they were called malcontents. There's always, he's a malcontent, or he's moody, or he can't get along. And I'm like, the truth of the matter is, like they weren't being treated well. You look at Willie Mays, Willie Mays took a lot of crap in his career. So then you start, you're like, all right, Barry Bonds. Learn from Bobby Bonds and Willie Mays. Well, how did he become that way? Well, maybe it's because they experienced this. And then you're like, some of the most fascinating people are the biggest jerks. You know, like it's actually kind of interesting. So that was kind of. I just found him really fascinating, and he was. I can't stand him, but he's really interesting. (laughs) Like I did a Roger Clemens book. My two books. My two books about jerks. Roger Clemens, who was a pitcher, and Barry Bonds. Roger Clemens was the least enjoyable experience of my life, because he wasn't curious. Like he had no curiosity about her, no self introspection. Um, at least Barry Bonds did. So anyway. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Mm. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you. Oh uh, you were first to clap. Second with the question but first to clap. Thank you. So well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I just want to say my father in law lives at the Wellington and they don't have a room this nice. So oh, <laughs> Again, let's give a round yeah. of applause for Jeff Krollman. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having there is some light, re- light refreshments and cookies outside, so please enjoy. And that's sponsored by the Covington Enrichment Fund, I believe. So thank you to them, too. Thank you so much. I want to thank you guys for listening to a very special episode, a live episode of Two Riders the Yang. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for listening. And remember, of course, keep riding.